FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm awfully glad to have you here. I've got a lot to talk about and a good panel uh, to do it. Uh, Let me get right to introducing everybody. Uh, We're joined today by Stephen Fowler, GPB's political reporter. Stephen, uh, you're all over the map covering elections, campaigns. You've been down at the state capitol covering uh, the legislature. Uh, You're just one of those reporters who just never seems to slow down. So we're glad you could be here today. Also, I have never promoted on you since you when you're on the show. And I want to do it right now so I don't forget. You have a great podcast uh, battleground ballot box. And I think we need to mention that as well. So in any case, hi, Stephen. <laughs> hey, Bill. And I've been literally all over the map, too. Just got back last week from Lincoln County for a reporting trip. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little later in the show, because down uh, over there, they're having a, a, quite a controversy over uh, closing down some of their polling places. And it it's a much more complicated issue than many people might think. So we'll get to that a little bit later in Political Rewind. We're joined by State Representative David Wilkerson, Democrat from Powder Springs. David, very glad to have you on the show uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which is that, of course, yesterday, Speaker Ralston rolled out the big bipartisan mental health expansion plan uh, that uh, he is strongly supporting. And you yourself have introduced a, a bill that relates to that in terms of providing uh, mental health services rather than necessarily incarceration for some Georgia inmates. So thank you for being here. We'll talk a bit about that during the show today as well, David. Thank you, and I'm glad to be on the show again. It's my second time, so I must have done okay last time. So thank you for having me back. (laughs) (laughs) Tammy Greer is with us. You know her as a political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. And Tammy, I I always look for the right words, but I think it's fair to say one of the things that you focus on most clearly is... um, the uh, getting people engaged in politics, looking at, at their voting patterns, turning out to vote. That's one of the things that matters most to you. Is that fair? It is completely fair. And I appreciate Stephen's work um, with Lincoln County because that's part of um, a whole understanding of, of, of politics and policy. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by somebody who has been on the show longer than almost every panelist we've had, Eric Tannenblatt. Uh, You know him uh, as a a political, a Republican insider. I've said it many times. He's worked with uh, everybody from George H.W. Bush to George W. Bush. He was uh, involved very deeply with Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. He was chief of staff for Sonny Perdue during Perdue's first uh, term as governor. And uh, he continues to be very deeply involved in politics. And he is the uh, global chair of public policy and regulation at Denton's, which is, of course, the world's largest law firm. Eric, I realize you've been doing this show for about seven years. Pretty amazing. 
Yeah, as I was listening to you, I was feeling very, uh, very old. Um, but I'm glad <laughs> that uh, you still have me back. <laughs> oh, we're glad to have you. All right, Stephen, let's look at the AJC polling first of all. Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, it's very hard to do numbers on the radio. And so I'm going to talk in generalities rather than give specific breakdowns of specific numbers. Uh, but I think the points will be clear. And and I think one of the most important uh, numbers to point out or the most important trends to point out, Stephen, is President Biden has literally, as the AJC described it, fallen off a cliff in approval numbers. He's down to only a third of the people who were polled, and that's like 800-plus polled by the University of Georgia, who approve of his job in office. And that includes something like, I think, uh, upwards of almost a quarter, maybe 20 percent of Democrats. That's bad news for Biden, but you've got to wonder how it's impacting uh, Democrats on the ballot uh, in upcoming elections. Well, I think it's also important to remember that we are in January of 2022, kind of a no man's land between the last big election and the next big election. And a lot of those numbers will probably shift when it comes time for voters to actually start casting their ballots. But I think if you look at the uh, AJC poll, as well as another poll that came out yesterday, um, it doesn't necessarily affect Democrats as much as you would think. You know, it's it's not, you know, Democrats are underwater and Republicans have 70 percent of the likely vote share in Georgia or things like that. But it does show as campaigns start gearing up their messages for the primaries in May, as well as the November general election, what issues are really top of mind for Georgia voters and what kind of things they're concerned about. And for now, they don't believe that the White House and Congress and Democrats in charge at the federal level are doing enough about things like inflation and the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, it could either be viewed as a warning sign or a roadmap for what can we do to make things better in the next 10 months or so. Well, David, you're the Democratic elected official on the panel, and certainly there have been a lot of concerns expressed by Democrats. I'm not suggesting you've been one of them, but but your friend, your Democratic friends, many of them who have been very worried about the difficulties President Biden has had and how it's affected his approval rating. What's your take on the numbers here in Georgia, which, by the way, have fallen off from over 50 percent to like a third approval? Yeah, I think he suffers from what a lot of Democrats suffer from, and that's the policies are great. We're getting things done. Unfortunately, the messaging is not there. So if you look at a lot of the things the governor takes credit for, um, it's being funded by money from D.C., um, and he's able to give the raises to teachers. He's able to give the raises to law enforcement, et cetera, um, based on the, the money that's coming from D.C. that we passed on our own without Republican support. So I think, you know, we just need to make sure that we take a moment to enjoy our successes and make sure people know about them and worry about the next fight. And, and unfortunately, it, you know, that's one of the things that happens when you care about people is that you're always focused on the next fight instead of letting people know what you've already done um, to help the public. So uh, I agree the numbers are low. I agree that, you know, 10 months, 11 months is a long time in politics and a lot of things will change. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to see what happens over the next few months. Eric? Well, I w I'm not surprised by the numbers. What it says to me is that the last presidential election was really a referendum on Donald Trump, which is typically what 
uh, an election is when you have an incumbent. And I think maybe there was this impression that because Joe Biden won Georgia, that Georgia was becoming more democratic. Now, the, demo, the demographics are shifting and, and we are becoming more of a, a stronger two-party state. But I think Georgia still is a right-of-center state. And I think the Biden win had more to do with people's uh, distaste for, for Donald Trump. And I think you saw that continue on in the Senate uh, runoff races in January and how close they are. Um, you know, history shows that the party in power does poorly in the next election. So while the election is 10 months away and a lot can happen in the next 10 months, I think it's going to be very difficult to turn it around. And I do think that there will be coattails in terms of the drag of the current administration locally. And you're seeing that in these numbers, too, when you look at some of the down ballot races. Tammy? Yeah, so um, so it's all and right so it's all of all of these assessments and perceptions and um one sometimes um the general public tends to put a lot of uh, faith and trust inside of the federal government when many of these items that touch their daily lives are state and local matters and so to put a lot of pressure um on um the president and congress uh, takes away from understanding the, what's happening here, state and locally. I think also sometimes uh, during elections, um, voters tend to want someone to come in and hurry up and change. And government is, is a slow process because you go through different mechanisms and the bureaucracy of, of, of making those changes. So sometimes the patient um, is not there and the pendulum shifts and moves so much that there um, sometimes lacks a place of stability in order to get to those policy changes that voters are seeking. So, Tammy, one thing, though, I want to ask you about, and certainly everybody else is welcome to weigh in. Excuse me. I said on the show just last week that maybe we should spend less time looking at approval ratings for a president of the United States, whether it's Joe Biden or previously Donald Trump. And partly that's because the country is so divisive, is so divided in such a toxic way that it's hard to imagine any president uh, getting above 50 percent in approval ratings uh, these days. Nevertheless, the Biden numbers are so low that it does seem to me they represent a trend that the White House is going to want to work it. It's got to turn around to some extent, Tammy. Sure. The White House would have to turn it around, yet some of the policies that um, voters are most concerned about come out of Congress. Um, the president has the ability to enforce whatever the law is. Congress is um, tasked with um, creating the law. So we're putting, a, again, a lot of pressure, sometimes misguided, on the executive branch when the legislative branch has the authority to create those policies. Yeah, good, good point. Um Stephen, let me turn to you on a different uh, number in the poll uh, and ask you to start us off on this one. Um, although the, the, the question was asked whether a Trump endorsement would benefit a candidate like a David Perdue, like a Burt Jones, who's running for lieutenant governor, like Jody Heiss, secretary of state. And, of course, Republicans uh, said 
basically, yes, under 50 percent. But they said, yeah, we we would uh, be uh, motivated to some extent by a Trump endorsement. But a very large number of the people who responded to the polls uh, said that Trump's endorsement uh, wouldn't be of benefit at all and, in fact, might be a negative. Stephen, uh, what does that say to you about candidates who are playing so uh, close, they're, they're trying so hard to win Trump's approval in primary, Republican primary races, and what happens to him in general elections? Well, I think first you have to look at the primary. You have a slate of Trump-endorsed candidates in the governor, lieutenant governor, Senate, and secretary of state races. Uh, it's mm-hmm. likely that not all four of them are going to win those races. Uh, and I think you have to look at... Uh, The candidates that are running, especially when you look at the governor's race with Brian Kemp as a very strong conservative, where by and large, except for Trump, uh, people aren't questioning his conservative credentials. But when you look at the general election, you know, Georgia is a state. I mean, as Eric said, he believes Georgia is a right of center state. And these candidates, if they push themselves much further right to right of center, it could end up turning off enough people uh, voters that are more moderate and voters that are uh, anti-Trump that could end up being a deciding factor for Democrats in a state that still really is, as these polls show, too close to give decisively to either party at this point in time. Eric? Yes. Well, look, I think there's probably a portion of the Republican primary electorate that if Donald Trump gets behind a candidate, they're going to follow him. I I don't, you know, where I think the poll said 40 percent, I think there's 20 percent of that uh, of the Republican primary electorate that'll do whatever Donald Trump says. But, you know, when you're talking about statewide primaries, uh, it's not the majority. And as, you know, Stephen pointed out, I mean, Brian Kemp is popular among um, Republicans. He's been a he's been a good governor uh, from Republican uh, perspective. And so I I don't think uh, I think it's very different when someone's on the ballot themselves, like if Donald Trump was on the ballot versus him tapping someone and saying you should vote for this person. And Brian's going to have the governor's going to have a a record of accomplishments that he's going to be able to tout and talk about. And some of them uh, we hadn't seen yet because they're happening right now uh, in the legislature. And because the primary, the timing of the primary I mean, he's going to be signing bills. He's going to be giving out, you know, the the federal rescue money that is still sitting at the state. And so I think people are going to see what this governor is doing. Um, and so I don't think just because Donald Trump's endorsed David Perdue, that means that David Perdue's a shoe in a shoe in for it. I do think and I think it was the speaker who was on your show recently that uh, said that he was puzzled by, you know, the calculus of, of Purdue saying that there was, you know, friction or a split in the party, I I, I guess I I sort of side more with the speaker where I'm puzzled, too, because, you know, by a primary challenge in a gubernatorial race, you're all you're doing is you're dividing up the dividing up the party. And I think as we saw in the primary in the special election for the Senate races uh, last year, uh, the party was so divided that we elected two, you know, Democratic United States senators. And I think the party needs to be unified, especially as the demographics in the state change. Uh, David, uh, let's just finish off talking about the poll with this. Um, I understand why the AJC would create hypothetical matchups between uh, Stacey Abrams and either David Perdue or Brian Kemp. I mean, I get it. 
But I think we've got to be very cautious about how much uh, credibility we put into these hypotheticals. Uh, so, it, but having said that, in their hypothetical matchup, Brian Kemp is ahead of uh, Stacey Abrams, six points, something like that, in a statistical tie with David Perdue. Um, but, but tell me w- whether that means anything to you, and I'd love to get your take as a political scientist on this too, Tammy, at this stage of a race, whereas, where, by the way, as Eric points out, Brian Kemp's getting is a lot more in the news these days than Stacey Abrams. That's an excellent point. Um, you have a sitting governor who's only six points ahead of, uh, of the former minority leader. Um, so at this point, he's giving out a lot of money, um, whether it's to teachers, whether it's to um, police officers, whether it's to schools, whether it's to college parents. And to only be ahead six points, I think, would be a concerning factor because um, the former minority leader Abrams has not even launched her campaign fully yet. So I think the, the work she's done on voting rights, which I believe is a major concern of people, um, I think is going to is going to come into factor as well. So I think that um, you know they're both known quantities. So I think that um, you'll continue to see um, former minority leader Abrams continue to move ahead. But I, I think she should feel good where she is. And if I was the governor, I would feel a little worried where I am. Yeah, so it's interesting um, to see the matchup. Part of the challenge I think that the current governor has is um, sometimes being hard Trump aligned and then sometimes moving back to center. And so um, the shift can create confusion with voters, particularly if they're not necessarily wedded to the Republican Party. And with regard to um, the former minority leader, um, I think that, um, you know, in order to make inroads and continue to make those strides, then there has to be a focus that is broader than voting, because there are many factors inside of Georgia, outside of voting, that have an impact on everyone's lives. So there has to be a holistic look. Um, depending on, you know, how the campaign wants to run um, in order to, to, to bring forth whatever um, result that each can, candidate wants to have. Stephen? And, and I would just say, look, I mean, if you look at the last big, several big statewide elections in Georgia, really Democrats have a floor of maybe somewhere around 47 or 48 percent at the worst case scenario. You're not going to suddenly see you know, the Black Belt in Southwest Georgia and Atlanta's uh, diverse suburbs just mass defect to the Republican Party. Like there's a certain floor that Democrats are going to enjoy in this. But I think one thing to look at as well that can't be measured in polls and can't be measured in polls yet is what happens when Donald Trump discovers that Brian Kemp wins the primary. If Brian Kemp does indeed win the primary, there's a lot of external factors beyond Kemp's performance as governor and his budget and Stacey Abrams' campaign methods, whether it's focusing on voting in rural Georgia, that you've got this big Trump factor that could just wreak havoc on the top of the ticket from May to November, because I've talked with some Republican voters that just won't vote for governor if Brian Kemp is a nominee. And we've seen Trump weigh in with email statements about anything and everything to do with Georgia. And I can't imagine he's going to sit on the sidelines and say, you know what, I was wrong. Brian Kemp, please beat Stacey Abrams. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I don't know that anyone can predict. I don't know that anyone can predict what Donald Trump will do 
Um, I do know I do know that he's also endorsed Herschel Walker. And we saw in the last Senate, you know, in the Senate runoff, we lost the two Senate seats because the party wasn't unified. And I think that if Donald Trump really wants to see Herschel Walker, if he's the nominee, uh, get elected, the party is going to need to be unified. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of pressure put there. But I want to go back to the beginning of the conversation about Joe Biden's numbers. And I think that uh, that actually will impact someone like Stacey Abrams. I, I, in all respect, in due respect to the colleagues on the panel, they keep referring to Stacey as the minority leader, the former minority leader. Stacey Abrams has done a lot since she was the minority leader. And when she ran the last time uh, as the former minority leader, she had strong relationships, worked across the aisle. She's become a national Democratic figure. She delivered the response to the State of the Union address. She was considered to be a VP running mate for Joe Biden. So, you know, there's a reason why she didn't show up when he was in town last time. I know they said there was a scheduling conflict. But my guess is that that's a challenge that she's going to have to deal with is her association to the National Democratic Party, which right now, as the numbers show, is not very popular in Georgia. Yeah, it, uh, 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 I want to change the subject, but I do think it's worth pointing that out. David, I do think uh, it, it would make sense, given these numbers. And we don't know what Abrams' own internal polling is showing. We don't know what Purdue's or Kemp's internal uh, polling is showing. They tend to pay more attention to those kind of numbers of candidates than they do to a news organization's numbers, I think. Uh, nevertheless, this is a warning that uh, running as a Joe Biden Democrat may not be the best uh, thing to do right now, David. Yeah, and I, I, I think if you talk to people in Georgia as well as across the country, she's running as a Stacey Abrams Democrat, um, and and there is no one would ever accuse uh, Stacey Abrams as following anybody. I mean, she's forged her own path, and I think it's it's a national recognition. I mean, when was the last time we had a minority leader with a national name recognition? Um, so I think Stacey Abrams is her own person. While she may be impacted by what's happening nationally, I think people know who she is. She's been very clear about it. She she has a plan for Georgia. She's and she has worked across the aisle. I think she would continue to do that. So I think that's what people will get reintroduced to in the next couple of months. But I'll tell you, I was in Colorado and and a couple of months ago, and someone said we we gave to you know Warnock, Ossoff, and Abrams, and Abrams wasn't even on the ballot. But they consider her somebody that they're going to support nationally. They don't view her like I said as we, we support her because of Biden. We support Biden because of her in some cases. So, um, but yeah, I think it's it's definitely something we're going to keep an eye on over the next couple of months. Okay, well, people can read the uh, entire poll at uh, on the AJC today on the website, and they actually have it all laid out very uh, in in great detail, all the cross tabs uh, as well as the big numbers. Uh, David, uh, we ha- since we have you on today, I want to talk to you about your mental health. Uh, Bill, uh, when Speaker Ralston, as Eric pointed out, was on the show the other day, he told us that, of course, he thinks mental health expansion, doing more to uh, 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 get mental health services out to people in the state is the most important issue he will look at in the session. And he did say that his law enforcement folks up in Blue Ridge have been telling him they would like to see uh, some of the work that they have to do uh, in the hands of of mental health professionals. And to some extent, that's basically one of the things that your measure uh, does. You're suggesting in your bill that we should be paying more attention and putting more resources into how 
people who are convicted of crimes can be put into mental health treatment rather than incarcerated. Tell us a little more about that. Um, thank you for asking about House Bill 678. Uh, it actually deals with inmates in our jails, and this is where it started. So they, they've been charged with a crime but have not even been convicted yet. And it all was sparked mm. by some occurrences in Cobb County where we had a number of deaths a few years ago. And just trying to figure out what could be done, and, and I had made the commitment uh, that I would try to work on some solutions, and I started looking around the country. and. You know, Sandra Bland Act was out there at the time, and, and, and so what we decided was, as we worked on the bill, my team and I, is that there are a couple of things that we need to know. We need to know what was happening as far as suicide, deaths, et cetera, reporting requirement on that. Um, the second big thing was any time there was a death in the jail, that it would be investigated by the GBI. Uh, what's happening now is they can, the sheriff can investigate themselves, and even if they do a great job, and, and the public's not going to trust, the families are not going to trust what happens. So the GBI would investigate. Um, the third thing was providing 24-hour mental health services in the jails. Um, I am proud to say that my sheriff in Cobb County has done two of those things, which is he is now letting every death that happens in the jail be investigated by the GBI. He's bringing them in. And then the second thing is he has launched a 24-hour mental health facility treatment um, in, inside the jail. And so what the conversations have been at the Capitol is try to expand that. While every jail may not be able to afford $2 million a year, maybe we can look at it from a regional approach. And so hopefully as we look at mental health, we'll look at not just the people who are impacted in the communities where people of power may live, but we'll look at those that impact um, a large portion of our sheriffs, their deputies across this whole state that are you know, getting paid $10, $11 an hour and trying to you know, maintain a population at one point, and then also try to be mental health professionals. So um, hopefully we'll get some movement on it. So let me get a clarification that maybe will help listeners, too. Is your bill focused specifically on uh, county jails rather than state prisons and the incarcerated in state prisons? Yes, it it is, because that is where I get most of the calls. These are individuals that... There may be a crisis in their home, and and they call for help, and, and the only help that they can get is, is through law enforcement. So law enforcement has to take them to jail, and that's where they sit. And and many of these individuals have mental health um, issues that have not been treated. So this is really dealing with those that are inside the jail but have not been convicted but are suffering from mental health issues. Well, thank you for clarifying that, and I'm sorry that I, I misrepresented uh, no, no, uh, that initially. Um, Stephen, what's interesting about this, in a way, is uh, to some extent, Representative Wilkerson is swimming a little bit upstream in terms of the uh, mood down at the Capitol right now. Uh, We already know that Governor Kemp has decided to embrace a get tough on crimes agenda for the session and in some ways is has moved away from his uh, predecessor, Nathan Deal's efforts at criminal justice reform. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of bipartisan support uh, uh, David Wilkerson can get for improving mental health services in the jails. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's an election year and it's a big election year. So a lot of the conversations about really any bill takes on a more extreme lens. But I mean, mental health issues in Georgia is something that House Speaker David Ralston in particular has spent years working on and pushing towards it's a bipartisan measure that the speaker just dropped yesterday to deal with funding issues and other things and i think uh it's 
something that leadership is intentional about working on. And so I don't think there's anything that is inherently off the table other than expanding Medicaid, of course. But uh, I think this is a conversation that for all the talk about some more uh, higher profile controversial legislation, I will think this conversation about mental health across the board is something that's worth paying attention to more in this legislative session. Eric, real quick before we get to a break. Well, you know, being married to a psychiatrist, I could not keep quiet on this. I, I <laughs> applaud Representative Wilkinson and Speaker Ralston and Mary Margaret Oliver and, and Todd Jones for, for what they're doing. And what they proposed yesterday, and it's a bipartisan effort, will impact across the board. I mean, one of the provisions that really stood out to me was the creating a cancelable loan program for medical school residents, because one of the problems we have is we don't have enough mental health professionals to deal with the issues that we're faced. And, uh, you know, we've talked about jails, but even uh, if you look at new Atlanta mayor, Andre Dickens, he's been talking too about the mental health challenges that the police are having to be forced to deal with. And that's something else that's addressed uh, in this bill is co-response teams with, with the police. So, I think the fact that the state in a bipartisan way is focused on mental health uh, is going to be tremendous for the state. I applaud them all. Eric Tannenblatt. Eric Tannenblatt gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Clark Atlanta University's Tammy Greer, State Representative David Wilkerson from Powder Springs, uh, Republican insider Eric Tannenblatt and Stephen Fowler, GPB's uh, political reporter, all join me uh, for today's show. A couple quick program notes. Uh, Number one, uh, tomorrow night uh, for the remainder of the legislative session, Political Rewind will be on TV at 7 p.m., uh, the show that we do live at 9 o'clock in the morning will be broadcast on TV side tomorrow night at 7. It's only one way that you can get Political Rewind. You can also, of course, continue to listen to the show live and, and then the replay at 2. You can also follow us on Facebook live at gpb.org. On, or I'm sorry, on the Facebook page of uh, uh, on the GPB page of Facebook uh, on Fridays as well. So there's lots of ways that you can consume uh, Political Rewind. The other quick note is the latest edition of the uh, Political Rewind newsletter is now out. It'll come to your inbox every Wednesday. If you subscribe to it, do that by going to gpb.org slash newsletters and uh, we'll get it to you. Um Stephen Fowler, because we have you here, I want to jump to a topic. There's so many things to talk about, but I want to jump to the topic of Lincoln County, where there has been some enormous controversy around the fact that the election officials in the county want to close all but one polling place. There are election at you know voting rights advocates who uh, immediately jumped on that, claiming it was an effort at voter suppression. There have been uh, lots of uh, protests of this in the county, but this is a much more, in many ways, interesting and complicated story, and you've broken it out for us really well. People can read it on the GPB News website. So basically, uh, let's talk history for a second. Georgia has a long, sorted history of making it harder for black people to vote and passing laws that made it harder to vote. 
uh, so much so that Georgia had to have the federal government pre-clear any voting changes that were made up until 2013. There was a Supreme Court ruling that basically ended the federal pre-clearance requirement, so changes like closing polling places didn't have to have federal government oversight. In the last decade, about 10% of Georgia's polling places have closed, mainly in rural areas, and uh, that makes it harder for people to vote in person on Election Day. In Lincoln County, which is on the South Carolina border just north of Augusta, uh, elections officials there wanted to consolidate all seven of its voting locations into a single mega site in the center of town. Um, voting rights advocates signed petitions and got residents to sign petitions to temporarily halt that plan. They say closing it is voter suppression. I talked to the elections director there. She said that they just don't have the resources in this rural county uh, with very few voters and very few voters that show up on election day to be able to keep it open and keep it staffed. So it's a really complicated issue that is in the spotlight because of Georgia's history, because of its current epicenter of voting changes and the massive 98 page election law and false claims of fraud about the 2020 election. And so it's really a rock and a hard place of how do you serve voters with the little resources you can in a way that keeps everyone open to the ballot. So, uh, Tammy, a couple of things that are worth pointing out here. Number one, the uh, uh, the election director in Lincoln County is an African-American woman who uh, had proclaimed to Stephen, I do everything in my power to give as many people the right to vote. I want everyone to vote. Stephen also uh, was able to do an interesting breakdown of the geography of Lincoln County, which, by the way, is a majority white county. Um, and in fact, this one consolidated polling place, Stephen reports to us, is closer to the black neighborhoods of Lincoln County than it is to the white neighborhoods. Right, Stephen? I think it's only, most African-Americans would go like about a mile to get to this polling place where white voters have about a three mile uh, 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 drive to get there. Isn't that what you found out? Yeah, and basically the issue with Lincoln County is it's a rural county, and there are northern and southern parts of the county that honestly spend more time and geography away from Lincolnton and the center of town, and it's a bit of a transportation gap to get there, and it's less about partisan makeup or racial makeup of the county. So, Tammy, what does this tell you about how sometimes these matters can be much more complicated than we think they are? Absolutely. Right. Water can take the form of a solid, a liquid or a gas. And this is one of those elements, right, where you have Lincoln County, who, um, if I'm not mistaken, in the 2020 election voted somewhere around 68, 70 percent for the former president. Right. Um, so when we understand that it, it is not solely a racial issue when it comes to the ability for folks to get to the ballot box, it's also um, an economic and a, a class issue where you have this one county that is sparse um, with transportation um, and with uh, the just the infrastructure. Um, so you have a, a com- complex matter here. And I'm, I mean, I am not sure if we are looking at voting and the ability and the accessibility to vote from all aspects, social, political and economic. David. Yes. Yeah, so I guess the concern for a lot of people is the fact that last year there were a number of local bills that reconstituted election boards removing African-American members 
and then um, the, allowing the local GOP to appoint um, members to that board. So I think that you combine it with the fact that there's concerns about the machines, there's concern about, um, you know, on the conservative side about the election results. Um, that's the temperature that's in this state is just the uncertainty. So you can't, I, I don't want to say it's just a racial issue, but because you're right, I think it's just the access to voting. And, and when you go from that number down to one, there's definitely going to be questions. I mean, it's not an incremental decrease, it's a, a substantial decrease. And so um, I think that's the big concern is, is, is just the reconstituting of local boards. The, and now what you're seeing this session is the fact that for the first time in my following the chamber, whether I've been here 12 years and I was involved, you know, 10 years before that, is we are now pulling local redistricting maps out of local jurisdictions and making them general bills. And we've only done it to two counties that I know of. That is Gwinnett, uh, a minority county. We're about to do it to Cobb. So these continue to tax the minority voters by the House. While we say we want to do things bipartisan, it's just creating the uncertainty that you're seeing across the state. Eric, to some extent, you do have to say that it was Republicans who promoted uh, SB 202, the major changes in Georgia's election laws, the big lie being perpetrated by Republican followers of Donald Trump, among other things, that have given uh, voting rights advocates uh, a certain level of suspicion about something like Lincoln County, even if, in fact, the facts on the ground don't support this as an effort at voter suppression, certainly not uh, uh, focus on stopping minority voters from participating. Well, look, I think there's been a lot of misinformation uh, on what the legislature did last year with House Bill 202, and I think a lot of it's been fueled uh, nationally. I'm glad that, you know, the facts are getting out about Lincoln County because I think it gets to the root of uh, bigger issues. I mean, everyone wants access for people to vote. Everyone wants everyone to have the ability to vote. But we're also struggling with resource issues and they can't afford, you know, voting precincts. And maybe we need to look at that. I mean, it's, you know, we, we deal with challenges across the state and rural areas, whether it deals with health care. And now we're talking about uh, uh, voting, voting precincts. And I think those are issues that need to be need to be addressed. Okay, but but Eric, while there are certainly aspects of SB 202 that may be cut both ways, depending on how you want to view them, uh, certainly, as David Wilkerson points out, this notion that the state now has the right to take over a local election board, appoint partisan uh, uh, election officials, is one that has raised significant questions that may go beyond just uh, questions of whether you're a Democrat or Republican and how you view those things, Eric. Look, there's 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 no doubt there's there's certain aspects of of um, of the election law that, you know, people have have issues with. I'm, I'm just saying that uh, there are aspects of that bill that I think have been blown out of proportion that are uh, are, are, are not as uh, is being conveyed uh, or portrayed uh, across the country. I don't think, though, it addresses the issue we're talking about in Lincoln County. I think this is a resource issue. Well, and I think this really, I mean, another thing to take away from Lincoln County is less about, you know, what number between one and seven is the right polls, but more of this atmosphere and this environment that's created where any and every change to voting, be it good, bad, or otherwise, is viewed through such a lens of mistrust 
of the person doing the changing and proposing the changing. I mean, there are things in Senate Bill 202 that objectively will make it better for people to vote in most communities in Georgia. There are also things in Senate Bill 202 that objectively makes things more difficult for certain voters. There's also plenty of things in there that objectively make it more difficult for elections officials that are oftentimes under resources and underappreciated to have to do more things that provide minimal gain to the voters that they're supposed to be serving. And so today it's Lincoln County and polling places. Next month, it could be a different county and redistricting maps or early voting or poll workers. And it's just this environment where there's such distrust and anger about a process that's so fundamental to our democracy that I think is getting lost in trying to tally up wins and losses for the political parties. I thank you for that, because I think before we get to a break, let me just point out, Stephen, you already mentioned, of course, that in 2013, the Supreme Court made an enormous decision to end preclearance for Georgia and other states that in the past had had a record uh, history of denying African-Americans the right to vote. And that's why so many Democrats believe the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is such an important measure to pass because it would restore to a certain extent, it would give Congress the right uh, to say we need preclearance on uh, decisions like the ones being made in Lincoln County. Got to get to our final break. Back with more in a moment. If you happen to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at NIGUTB, N-I-G-U-T-B. I really encourage you to go look at uh, my tweet this morning. Andy Young published just a wonderful essay in today's Atlanta Journal-Constitution in which he ruminates about death, about his legacy, and he says this, "Um, The closer I get to 90, as more and more of my friends die, I find myself thinking quite a lot about what's next. What is it the Creator has in store for us by virtue of the life we have lived on this earth? The other day somebody asked me what I'll say to Martin Luther King Jr., when I see him in heaven. And he goes on to say he's not sure he has earned his place in heaven. It's just an example of why we treasure Andy Young so much. And uh, I posted a link to that uh, essay on uh, my uh, Twitter today. And it's just, it's just a wonderful piece. Um, all right, back to the news of the day. David Wilkerson, Democrats uh, have introduced a measure to essentially nullify all of SB 202, including aspects of the bill that they acknowledge are uh, uh, good. Uh, Is that the right way to approach uh, changing the election laws that some people feel are prohibitive? I believe what the the Democrats that had signed that bill were trying to do is point out the fact that um, the bill overall has caused a lot of great concern across the country. So maybe we restart. And I believe there's going to be some bills introduced that add back in the, the drop boxes and all the other good things that are in that bill. Um, you know, is it throwing everything out? Um, well, one, let me back up. The likelihood of it passing is nil. <laughs> so let me start with that. <laughs> uh, the second thing is I think it was more of a statement that there are some good things in the bill, and those will be introduced, but then there are some things that, such as the takeovers that cause the concerns that we're seeing that need to be taken out. Um Stephen, it is important to point out that this bill's not going anywhere. If It's a statement by, I think there's 30 Democrats who have signed on to this a measure. But again, as you point out, even the Democrats who've signed on to this want to reintroduce aspects of the bill that they think are, in fact, 
positive. Yeah, I mean, the problem with a 98-page bill is inevitably you'll be able to find something that uh, you can agree with or that invalidates uh, concerns about the other part. And, I mean, omnibus bills are usually bad in that regard because everybody can look at it with their own lens and find the good and the bad and the confusing with it. But, uh, you know, I think with, uh, you know, going back to those polls for a second, uh, the AJC poll and the other poll that came out yesterday, uh, one of the things that is top of mind for voters of both party in Georgia, in addition to COVID-19, in addition to inflation and the economy and things, is elections and voting and election law concerns. And so for Republicans, it's been Senate Bill 202 and changing election laws to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat uh, and things like that. For Democrats, it's the concerns of how these bills are changing and will leaders accept election results and things like that. And so I think you're seeing that reflected in this legislation and in this legislative session that uh, for better or worse, you know, 2020 might have been a referendum on Donald Trump, but 2022 in Georgia may be a referendum on who we vote for, but also how those votes are counted. Okay, thank you for that. I want to get a couple more subjects in, so if you don't mind, I'm going to move on. And and Tammy, as the academic on the panel today, I want to ask you about a decision made by the acting chancellor of the University System of Georgia. We know that Republicans, some Republicans in the legislature, including Governor Kemp, who made it a part of his State of the State speech, want to ban the teaching of critical race theory in K-12 through schools in Georgia, and I guess in higher education uh, settings as well. Uh, they prefer it wasn't taught, but it's not being taught. Uh, Teresa McCartney, uh, a Kemp appointee as acting uh, chancellor, has now asked presidents and provosts in the state universities to report back to her on whether their schools are teaching courses that deal with oppression and privilege. Now, you're not a state university, but certainly as an academic, you must have a thought about what that means. I do. Um, number one, um, that is not, is, is not teaching in K through 12, right? And then um, when it comes to um, undergraduate education, it has not been a traditional thought. So bringing this theory that shall not be named into the ether um, is, is almost misleading <laughs> because what we're doing is we're creating an atmosphere of something ex that exists that does not exist. Uh, number two, uh, academic freedom within higher education is important because this is where we teach our students to think critically about information that they are receiving. So how can we teach critically if um, particularly in public funded higher institutions of higher education, they are tied as to what they can teach. Number three, if, if we are shy about teaching um, um, accurate and full history of the United States, then we need to say history is no longer um, a major for people. History is no longer a subject that we need to teach. Because if we take those elements out, we're not being truthful um, to our students and to ourselves and to what it means to be in these United States. So it's false. It is not true. And I um, would challenge elected officials to move away from creating false um, emotions within individuals and, and creating division where it does not exist. 
Eric, look, you're not here to defend every single thing that a Republican proposes needs to be done. Um, and so I want to ask you this. Are, is it, are we ready to deny that white privilege exists, that African-Americans and other minorities have, in fact, been oppressed in the history of the United States and certainly in the history of the South? I don't think you would uh, stand behind uh, that notion. No. And I also don't know, you know, the motivation behind the the letter. I mean, the the border regents, you know, they, they get appropriated dollars. And, you know, you even, you know, acknowledge that legislators are raising some of these issues and the chancellor could be responding to requests made by legislators to ask those questions. So I, you know, wouldn't read um, too much into it, but yeah, as for me personally, yes, you are correct, Bill. <laughs> yeah. I. By the way, David, this request came from a conservative Republican member of the legislature. It wasn't a Democrat who said, well, let's survey whether or not we're teaching white privilege and oppression in the schools. David? Yes, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I don't blame the chancellor. The chancellor's just reacting to the, the pressure they're getting from the Capitol. I mean, they were asking even the technical system um, if they were teaching it, and they looked shocked that they were even asked that question. So, I mean, we don't even have to look at historical precedent. I mean, we're not even talking about history. I mean, someone can we teach the fact that, you know, you had um, the Gwinnett delegation chairman yesterday complaining about what was being done to his county. So I think the, the thought of power is, has existed since the beginning of time, and I think you have to talk about the power and how it relates to society. And, and um, But there is no critical race theory in, in K-12. We're just, you know, trying to put a political message. Um, okay, thank you for that. We'll follow that story as it develops. Stephen, uh, just a little time left. Raphael Warnock um, it now has raised $23 million for his reelection campaign. Herschel Walker has just uh, uh, reported raising an additional $5.4 million for his challenge, what we imagine will be his challenge if he wins the Republican primary of Warnock. Uh, the amount of money that's going to be spent on that race <laughs> and the governor's race in the months ahead is going to be staggering. Yes? Uh, $23 million is how much Warnock has in the bank. He's raised even more oh, than that. Is, and, you gotcha. know, if I, you. If, I had a, if I had a time machine, I would maybe go back in time and buy a TV station that specializes in running political campaign ads. <laughs> I, I've said on this show any number of times that my old friends at Channel 2 uh, at WSB-TV are very happy about the fact that it now costs so much uh, to uh, win office, and most of that on uh, buying time. Uh, that's it. We are completely out of time for today's show. Uh, thank you for a really terrific conversation. Stephen Fowler again. Um, uh, Sam, can we post a link to Stephen's story on our social media? Terrific. Thank you for that. Tammy Greer, always a pleasure to have you with us. David Wilkerson, good luck as the session continues in the weeks ahead and come back and join us again at some point in the near future. And Eric Tannenblatt, again, always happy to have you on the show as well. That's it for us. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. And uh, I look forward to seeing all of you then. Remember, that show will be on TV tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. You can watch it there. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, and get a booster. Bye, everybody.